Welcome to the Crosslead Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Silverman. At Crosslead, we exist to help teams and individuals achieve and sustain optimum performance. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Peter Chung. Peter is the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Summit Partners. When I first met Peter seven years ago, he was already an incredibly successful private equity investor, but was about to become the firm's first CEO. Over his 30 plus year career, he has been on the Forbes Midas list multiple times, having invested in more than 30 companies, including 18 current or formerly publicly traded companies. Today, we talk about what defines a culture of excellence in teams, leadership traits that differentiate the best from the rest, and what he looks for in leaders that he invests in. We talk about the evolution of private equity investing and the latest trends in business. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with my friend and mentor, Peter Chuck. So Peter, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I'd love to just to get a chance to get to know you better today. Maybe start, take us back to where you're from and talk a little bit about your upbringing, if you would. Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and really, really looking forward to this conversation. But I'm the child of immigrants. I guess that's sort of the first, the, the, the genesis story of my life. My parents are, uh, came here from Korea in the, in the mid-60s. Like a lot of immigrants at that time, my father came here. He had just left the Air Force in Korea, and he came over to pursue a, a graduate degree. He was going to go to Carnegie Mellon, but he got off the plane in Chicago and uh, was waiting for my mom to come over. And so instead of just, uh, he, had, he had to, whatever, had to pay his bills. So he, start, he took a job as a draftsman at, a, at an engineering firm in, in the Loop in Chicago and um, just never left. So Did he I have like a, a background in, in, in art and drafting? Or? Well, he, was, he was studied engineering in, in college. He, had a, he was a pilot and then an engineer in the, uh, in the Korean Air Force. And uh, it, well, he, he, he loved America because at the time, you, you're probably familiar with this day, but they had officer exchange programs. And so right, he, yep. knows, he knows every Air Force base in America because uh, he's <laughs> been to most of them. Uh, anyway, so he came, he came to uh, the U S to study, to get his PhD in engineering. Instead of going to Carnegie Mellon, he uh, decided to uh, study at the university of Illinois. And, and uh, I was born and raised in Chicago in the Chicago area, grew up in a town called Hinsdale, which is uh, which was a wonderful place to grow up in the seventies and eighties because of my father's history. And my grandfather's also a pilot. I was fascinated with aviation. You know, again, when I was a little kid, I'd had a dream of going to the air force Academy and becoming a fighter pilot. Oh, wow. And that was, yeah. that, that, it was like layers in life, you know, not necessarily stages, but that was like this foundational layer. And I still have a lot of that in my makeup. You know, I still love aviation. I uh, have deep reverence for the military, not uncommon amongst children of parents who were, you know, my parents were refugees during the Korean war. So oh, wow. there's a, sort of a, a, a reverence for MacArthur and the Marine Corps and, you know, the, what, 50,000 young American boys who, who were killed or wounded in Korea. Uh, yeah. I don't think I appreciated that until I spent time over in, in Asia as a young officer in the Navy. And you, and you go over there, you would just see the appreciation that people had for what, you know, what the U S had done all the way from Australia up to, up to, you know, Japan. I mean, it was, yep. it was pretty, it was pretty remarkable. And, and like you, yeah. my, my father was a pilot. So I, I know what it's like to want to be a pilot growing up until I found out my eyesight wasn't that great. And then there was like, all right, well, I guess I figured out the, the alternative. Well, <laughs> exactly. Almost exactly the same thing happened to me. I, I think as you know this, Dave, but you know, I guess if you're thinking about the next layer of life, 
like you, it was, uh, it was as a student athlete that began probably in middle school you know, growing up in the, in a, in a town like Hinsdale where sports are really important, get pulled into sports at an early age and did the Midwestern sports. I played football. I was a wrestler. I played baseball mm. over time. I, I probably midway through high school, I dropped baseball and stuck with football and wrestling, but you know, I just had the opportunity to compete with guys who remain to this day, some of my best friends. You know, I still, I really wanted to be a college athlete, but I was still had this dream of going to the Air Force Academy and flying an F-16. And um, that that ended suddenly, I think in like January of my senior year when I didn't get a vision waiver. I'd gotten an appointment, getting recruited to play football, but didn't uh, didn't get the vision waiver. So wow, uh, that kind of ended suddenly. But, you know, when one door closes, another opens oftentimes that, uh, Tough to tell that to a 16 or 17 year old boy who's been dreaming of this for, you know, is on the doorstep of his childhood dream. But the door that opened, and I don't mean to <laughs> kind of a funny way to say this as, as sort of a fallback. The Constellation but, Prize was Harvard. Yeah, so. I, got, I, got, I was very fortunate to have the chance to go to Harvard and play football. And uh, that was a terrific experience. You know, it was, it was a humbling experience and what, it was a transitional one because I wasn't as, uh, as a, I wasn't as good as I thought I was, put it that way, when I, when I, uh, when I went there. and uh, What, you know, what position became, were you playing in football? Uh, I was a running back. I, you are running back. You know, back then, you played both ways. I was a running back and a, and a defensive back in high school. And, mm. But I, li- I loved carrying football and went off to Harvard and was, uh, was probably in over my head in terms of talent, uh, even back <laughs> then in, in the 80s. Uh, but that, you know, kind of, it, it, it was a period of tremendous personal growth and um, in so many different ways. Is sort of the story of a boy becoming a man, and that that's uh, that doesn't come easily or smoothly. And and same was true for me during my college days. But that that I guess the student athlete, the at least the active participant, the competitive athlete part of it started to change and kind of came to an end after my senior year. I actually went on a athletes in action wrestling tour of Central America. For some reason, they just they I don't know why, but they took me on this team because I was a decent high school wrestler, but these guys were really good wrestlers. So mm. we, were, were you wrestling there. at Harvard as well? No, no. You, you know, is wrestling. It's kind of like water polo. It's a pretty miserable sport. You know, oh, it's brutal. Uh, so, Cutting weight. Yeah. yeah really a lot of life tough. lessons, a lot of life lessons, but you know, I, I uh, fractured my collarbone before my senior season. So I didn't, I missed my whole senior season and sort of felt unfulfilled. So I did this, athletes in action tour as a way to close the book on, on that sort of competitive part of my, um, the, of the student athlete layer of my life. Now that continues out, you know, it kind of manifested itself in different ways. Can't play football or wrestle when you get in your thirties and forties. So, you know, I took up mountaineering and rock and ice climbing and surfing and I'm a big fly fisherman. Do you know, uh, I like to hunt with you and, and, uh, all your buddies. Uh, and I, you know, and then I surpass it on to, to coaching my three boys in, in a variety of sports. Um, yeah. You're very active, right. As a coach in the, in your local community. I was. Yeah. 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 And awesome. So. Yeah. You know, I find it uh, going from a student athlete, that's sort of all, you know, you know, all the way through college and your whole life sort of revolves around that. When you, when you finally made that, maybe talk a little bit more about that transition, you know, when you started to realize, all right, what's the next phase of my life going to look like? You know, I, I've got a friend who actually coaches former Olympians and, she's, you know, these people, a lot of these people are dealing with depression, right? Cause their entire yeah. life was focused on 
10, 15, 20 seconds worth of glory. And then they come home and it's sort of like, all right, well now what? Yeah. You know, it's, it's your, your identity is wrapped around whatever it is you're doing. Right. So if you're a good athlete, you're, you see yourself as an athlete. And, Mm -hmm. um, I think I was probably a little bit more well-rounded. I was obviously a, a fairly good student and had other interests and hobbies, but I would say by and large, my identity was as a student athlete. And when that comes to an end, it's, uh, you have to almost redefine yourself. And that, that can be a challenge, uh, at any stage in life. But for me, frankly, uh, I was, uh, let down slowly, as I said, I wasn't that <laughs> great an athlete in, in, in college. And so that let me, uh, begin a, a relatively gradual transition into becoming the next thing. And for me, that was becoming a finance professional. You know, I, I didn't know anything about wall street or investing or f- the financial world. When I went to college, uh, my father was an entrepreneur. He would, he had started a steel fabrication business and built mm. pressure vessels and storage tanks, sort of his, uh, sort of the, the practical application of his engineering education. But, you know, when I was a junior and senior in college, but at the time, this was late eighties, all the smart guys that I knew were going down to wall street. So I thought, well, you know, sounds like a pretty interesting thing to do. And what did you study? What did you study at Harvard? What was your, what was your major? Economics. Economics. Okay. So that, that's a nice, that's a nice segue into finance then. Yeah. Yeah. So I went, uh, went to work at Goldman Sachs in New York in the, in what was then the merger department, the M&A advisory group. I just picked that firm and that group because I liked the people the best. There wasn't any scientific reason for doing it other than mm. I, I really liked the people, thought they were terrific. What I didn't realize is that I hated New York. So I moved to New York, had a great first few months, you know, for the first time in your life, you have money in your pocket, but you're, you're working, you know, just brutal hours. Yeah. The, the uh, investment banking world is known for that, right? It's like, so it's yeah. like a crucible for young yeah. college graduates. <laughs> Yeah, some recent blowback, which I find amusing. Back then, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. people were less sympathetic. generation these days. <laughs> yeah, they're less sympathetic to the plight of the young analysts. But extraordinary learning experience. But again, I didn't like New York, so I was looking to uh, make a change. I volunteered to transfer to the Los Angeles office, which was uh, again a pivotal and transformational decision in in the arc of my career. I spent two years in LA, uh, working primarily with the uh, a partner named Gene Sykes, who is still a very active partner at Goldman Sachs, from whom I learned a tremendous amount about how to think about businesses, how to conduct yourself in a meeting, how to negotiate, how to value businesses. Really, really important. Can you maybe share some of those key like takeaways or key lessons from that you learned? One of the biggest lessons I learned from Gene was to be, don't shortcut your preparation for meetings, especially when you're young. You know, I was 22 or 23 years old. We were advising boards and, and executive teams of publicly traded companies on the biggest decision they could ever make, right. Which was potentially to sell their company. Mm. And, um, it, I learned early that it didn't necessarily matter how old you were. It mattered a lot, uh, how well-prepared, how thoughtful, how articulate, how intelligent you were, right. It just mattered how good you were. And mm. uh, I thought that, that that was different than my impression of what work was like. And I think some of that I, I attribute to Gene. He just put me in positions where you know, sort of, uh, send me to meetings alone and, uh, figure it out, you know? And, um, uh, I, um, I, I just learned a tremendous amount from him in terms of that way of thinking about rendering advice, giving your opinion, thinking about strategy, and then communicating all that in a compelling way. 
Yeah. Great. Great. And, and if you, if you go back for a second, Peter, to like, you know, your, your childhood and, and even college, is there a key takeaway or lesson from you about being a part of teams that, that, you know, you still sort of carry on today or, or, or think about, or try to still in your, in, into your, into your boys? You know, Dave, um, the, there's a, perhaps a common denominator, uh, un, uh, under a lot of very, very successful organizations is that, and that, that is that they have a culture of excellence that mm. their organizations comprised of people who have very high standards. They have tremendously high expectations of themselves. And that translates into a group of people who can perform in a relatively self selfless way and produce extraordinary results over a long period of time. I, I think the, you know, the, uh, the opposite, what I've seen in many places is the opposite of a culture of excellence is a culture of entitlement. And that can be very difficult to reverse. It also leads to hierarchy, bureaucracy, all the things that, you know, you point at and say that that's the root cause of inefficiency or poor performance in an organization. So, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to sit, to, to, to talk about in a relatively small organization like our firm. I can understand how it's difficult in a much, much larger organization, global organization, but it's, it's one of the things that we look for when we hire people. You know, if they have very high expectations of themselves, higher than I might have of them, that's probably going to work out pretty well. But if my expectations for somebody are low, are higher than their expectations of, their, of themselves, it's just a matter of time before it doesn't work. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that that flips over for me and my children, uh, where I have higher, they have higher expectations of themselves than I do of them. We're not, we're not quite there yet at seven and 10, but we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's another one of, you know, I'm, I'm currently in the 20 years into it now, husband and father stage, but you know, I, I, I think I've got to be careful about applying those professional lessons to my personal life. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You got to figure out that balance. Yeah. No, I, I've been, I've been pretty reflective myself around, my time as an athlete, mainly because my coach, uh, my, my high school coach just passed away sort of suddenly a couple of weeks ago. And, and like a lot of us have been, were sort of taken aback and surprised. And there was, it, I was sort of surprised at the, sort of the outpouring of emotion and, and, and the reconnection you had with old teammates and even people that were affiliated with the program over years, just because the guy was a you know pretty legendary coach. But there was, right. it, I, I look back and say, you know, there's a lot of lessons there that like really helped me navigate through, a, you know, I would say adversity out life that really I can tie back to the, that pool deck in high school where, yep. you know, to Absolutely. your point, he sets a very high standard. And the other thing I liked about it was it was a meritocracy uh, to one extent, and he didn't care who you were. Didn't care, you know, if your parents had means or not, or, you know, what your background, if you showed up and you, and you put out every day, you could be on the team. And if you didn't, you know, you were gone. Yeah. yeah Dave, I think there's something about this in our, in our nature, right? There, obviously in sports, there's all the tried and true, learnings that that apply to participating in team sports you learn the value of hard work you learn how to handle adversity you learn how to handle success and failure so on and so forth but you know it's funny they talk about millennials now want having a lot of motivations one of which is to be a part of something bigger than themselves part of a cause all that stuff well that was no different than playing on a team in right. in your right. for, for you and i when you know 20 or 30 or 40 years ago right? That was, that was all part of it. You wanted to be some part of something that was bigger than yourself in many ways. If, uh, if they, if it was an organization that was accustomed to great success, you were proud to be a part of that tradition. And, um, yeah. I don't, I don't, that, that, I think what we're talking about today with millennials and Gen Z and, and, and Gen Z is no, not that much different, you know, 
it, they yeah, manifest totally itself perhaps in a different way. Um, all right. So take me back to LA. You're in LA. You're learning from this legendary partner at Goldman Sachs. You're, you're learning some, you're, you're being thrown into meetings at a very young age where you're advising, you know, probably pretty senior executives on, on their most important you know, decisions around whether to sell their business or not. And then what's next? Where do you, where do you go? How long are you in LA and where do you go next? Is it, you go to well, Stanford next? Yeah, it, it was, you know, again, I love New York, but to be clear, I didn't want to live there. So, uh, I, I, been offered the chance to skip business school and, and continue on career track at Goldman, but it required a move back to New York. And so, you know, I was 24 years old at the time living in Manhattan beach and I just couldn't bring myself to, to do that. I, I really did enjoy <laughs> California. So almost, um, I, I applied to business school and, and, uh, decided to go to Stanford there again, somewhat of a, I would have never predicted that I would go to Stanford business school when I graduated from college. Why? Uh, well, you know, I'd grown up in the Midwest and and had been you know, educated on the East Coast and lived in New York. Had a very you know Eastern half of the U.S. centric point of view, but moving to moving to Manhattan Beach and then you know doing business in Northern California and Silicon Valley, I really liked the area. I liked the people. I liked the innovation, the energy, and so I decided to to, to go to the GSB. And uh, again, just a, an extraordinary piece of good fortune not just to be in the class in which, in which I, from which I graduated, just a terrific group of people with whom I'm very close today, but, um, also had the opportunity to study investing under the legendary Jack McDonald. Uh, Jack mm. taught investing in Stanford business school for 50 years, undoubtedly the best teacher I ever had, but more importantly, because he'd been such a legendary figure already by the time I became one of his students, you know, he, he had this larger than life aura, although, although he was an extraordinarily humble and low key, thoughtful person, he would pick two or three students to work for him as case writers every year. And for some reason he decided he picked me. And, um, as I sort of progressed through that second year of business school, I realized that, gosh, you know, if Jack picked me as one of his case writers, he, he must think I could be a pretty good investor. Mm-hmm. And that, that started my uh, exploration of a career in investing. And, um, you know, that's, um, that was again, one of the more influential experiences, clearly the most, uh, the most impactful person in, in my thinking about my, my, not just my career, but also my life and, and, um, how to conduct yourself in a personal professional situation, just an extraordinary person in so many ways that wouldn't have happened if, if I hadn't decided to go to Stanford business school. This low key comment keeps coming back. I mean, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about because I know you're a student of it now, like leadership. Like, you know, what are your takeaways that sort of differentiates leaders in the environment? I know, I know you're you, you, you sort of referenced in previous conversations we've had Jim Collins and some of the work he had done. I'd love to hear more on some of your your thoughts. Well, again, I'll, I'll, I'll confess that oftentimes you know you you tend to gravitate to theories which probably. Um, reinforce your own point of view or reinforce yeah. your own strengths or weaknesses. Right. Sure. Of um, course. But well, there, there, there's a perhaps somewhat of a difference between being an, an entrepreneur and being a leader. Many of the best entrepreneurs, again, I'm saying this from the perspective of someone who lives in Silicon Valley and well known for having a certain entrepreneurial culture, but a lot of entrepreneurs became entrepreneurs as, as a response to some trauma or some difficulty in their, in their earlier lives. I think that, oh, that's interesting. Is that true? I didn't realize that. Well, it's the Steve Jobs phenomenon. You know, we we mm. see this all the time. I heard a saying that uh, about about bad fathers in Silicon Valley. I said, "Thank goodness for bad fathers because without them, there wouldn't be so many entrepreneurs." Oh now, wow! I, 
I think that's a little uh, extreme, but there is a common thread in, in many entrepreneurs that they, that they become somewhat nonconformist because, because of some past history. That's, that's again, a gross stereotype, but there is a, there is some commonality amongst that personality type. They, they tend not to do well in big companies. They want to do something different, unique. They see the world differently and that can create an extraordinary, uh, vision, a different differentiated vision on opportunities. I can again, many of those entrepreneurs, they can be great leaders, but not necessarily because of, again, what makes them a great entrepreneur doesn't necessarily make them a great leader company builder. There are always exceptions to that rule, but that's not uh, an uncommon pattern to see here. I think when, when you talk about leaders, again, leaders who can sustain great performance over some period of time, there is also another, you know, simple aphorism that A people hire other A people and B people hire C people. So what what's a great characteristic of a leader? They can attract outstanding people to come work with them, not for them, but with them. You know, they want to be a part of, again, going back to this concept of, of, of teams, they want to be a part of an extraordinary organization that does great things. I, I think one of the commonalities of, of some of these great leaders who can attract extraordinary people is they're relatively selfless, right? They're, they're driven by what's best for the team, what's best for the company. And not necessarily, of course, everybody's to some extent, they're capitalists, right? They're, they're, they're motivated by the, you know, they embrace the profit motive, but it's more than that. And it's not at the expense of, uh, a, of, of the success of their teams. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it definitely reconciles, um, with some of my thoughts for sure. And some of my own experiences, it's interesting. You say, you say that about entrepreneurs, cause you're, you're right. You know, I think I grew up my high school years in, 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 in the Bay area and you would see a lot of these companies and you'd look at the leaders and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know if I, those are people I necessarily want to follow, but they do have a compelling idea or product that, you know, they're going, but there's now, they, but at some point that has to transition, right? I mean, the, as the organization gets some degree of scale and, you know, leadership management starts to take a more critical role in the, yeah. the, the sustainability and success. And at, and at Summit, you, you guys tend to invest a little later stage, right? You're not dealing, you know, right. typically with like brand new startups. You're, you're doing something that has a little That's bit more maturity. We're, we're growth equity investors, but much of what we've done for almost 40 years is invest in companies that are still owned by the founder, CEO, the founder, or okay. a founding family, or a close group of non-institutional shareholders. Mm, okay. And, and out of the, in the time those invest, what, what, what's the, what's like roughly the percentages of, of the time that the, the founder is going to stay on and, and keep kind of driving the business versus, you know, they're looking, this is their opportunity to sort of make a, a material change in their, in their career progression. You know, Dave, we've looked at our data recently on, on realizations over the last six or seven years. And what we've discovered is that about 70% of the time we back the same CEO leader from start to finish of our whole, of our investment during our whole wow, period. That's impressive. And when we do our realized results are significantly better than when we don't, if we have a Why? CEO change, if we have a CEO change for any reason, it tends to extend your holding period because that new CEO typically rebuilds the team. And right. there's a new CEO oftentimes because there was a performance issue, right? So that it takes time to rebuild the executive team. They will on occasion, reset strategy or adjust strategy and Makes as an sense. Investor, that, that extends your holding period, which has an impact on IRR. Mm, so I, my, I imagine then when you're, when you're going through the process of trying to determine whether you want to invest in one of these companies, you must spend a lot of time on the, on the diligence of the actual leader themselves, considering that the, the, the stats you just, you just articulated. 
that's become one of our primary emphases in, in recent years is to really go deep on the human capital underwriting component of this. It's mm-hmm. a, it, that, that is significantly more art than science. But, <laughs> right. Uh, right. But, but part of it is again, to sort of um, go back to Polonius speaking to, to Laertes, you know, to thine own be self be true. Just, you know, be objective, be intellectually honest. Don't hear what you want to hear. Uh, and that's a challenge, right? That's difficult. That's, it's not easy in human nature, but really step back and try to be as objective as possible about what you see and hear uh, about the person you're about to back. Shakespeare, still relevant 500 years later. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. So you graduate Stanford, you, you, you move to Summit. Uh, maybe take, take us through the, you know, the arc of your career as an investor. Uh, you know, how, what was it like in the early stages and how has that evolved over the years? Yeah, when I when I joined Summit in 1994, you know, the investing business, private equity and venture capital or growth equity, as we call it today in our part of the, the market, was a, a fraction, a tiny fraction of the size it is today. And mm-hmm. the firms were by and large artisanal in nature. It was, a, it was an apprenticeship business. They were partnerships, true partnerships. And it was, um, you know, again, it was more of a, a craft as opposed to a, an industry. Uh, that's all changed today. The industry, the, but the business has become much more industrialized and uh, and institutionalized. And I think generally that's been a positive evolution. It, it, uh, with all of the capital and the growth in the industry, the business has had to mature, and that's uh, that's been the case both at our firm as well as across the industry. But we were, I think, around eight hundred million of assets under management. Today we're almost thirty billion, and um, wow. uh, our headcount probably grown. I don't know fourfold, fivefold in that period of time. Now the, in your entire time, you've been, you were, you've always, you've always lived in the Bay area and have you been focused predominantly in the technology space? Is that, was that sort of the discipline that you you followed up in? Yep. And again, uh, sort of talking about layers of your life that build on top of each other, you know, going all the way back to my, my origin story, you know, this, this latest layer is as a tech investor at summit, I still am responsible for subject matter expertise and thought leadership in a subset of, of the uh, technology sector in which I've been investing for most of my career. But over time, I added additional responsibilities. I, I was a member of our executive committee for nine years, and uh, that was a group of partners that ran the firm. And then even though I was never really a proponent of moving to the CEO model, 2014, my, my partners asked me to become the CEO. And uh, that became my role beginning in uh, January 1st, 2015. Talk about that. That's interesting. So you're in a partnership model. What, 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 would, what was the impetus to change, to transition to having a CEO? You know, I think, uh, again, I, f- first observation I always make is that being the CEO of a partnership is very different than being the CEO of a company. You're still a mm. partner, right? I'm, right? I'm a managing director of the firm. And, and although I've, I'm invested with certain additional responsibilities and, and authority, but I'm still a partner. And so that requires, uh, to some extent, building some consensus. And, um, and, you know, again, I think to some extent, everybody has a boss, right? I think that's one of my, one of one, another leadership lesson I would add, Mm -hmm. it's good to have a boss. It's good to be accountable to somebody. So I'm accountable to everybody at the firm. I view my role as not just being a leader, but also, uh, working for everybody in the firm. And of course, we all work for our investors, right? Our our limited partners are are, are the uh, group of people to whom we're ultimately uh, accountable. But mm. 
I think that's the first observation I'd, I'd make, Dave. But um, the impetus to move to a partnership, to, to move to a CEO model, I think was fairly straightforward. Any multi-person decision-making apparatus is inefficient by definition, right? It, it can sometimes sure. lead to the right outcomes, but our, our I think our, our our experience was that the cost in terms of inefficiency outweighed the the benefit in terms of consensus building, right? So we took the decision to to consolidate the leadership group of the firm to have a single voice for uh, speaking for strategy and to sort of establish the lexicon of the firm and all the norms and processes and all the things that are necessary to run uh, a business, but to do so in a, in a more efficient way, right? As opposed to four or five or up to seven people making that decision, it's now one or two. Got it. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. If we go back to, you know, kind of what you look for in a leader and you said it's more art than science, I'd be curious, like what is your, what is like your internal sort of pattern recognitions or process you go to, to sort of like suss out whether the leader is somebody that you think is somebody you want to partner with uh, versus not? I think the first thing, Dave, is to really understand their motivation. What's causing them to engage in a conversation? What, what allowed them to build the company? How will they respond to challenges? How will they respond to adversity? Right. Uh, and I think to some extent, the, it, it goes back to their willingness to really build teams and, uh, and, and attract and empower outstanding people. Some leaders are uncomfortable with that, right? Delegating authority. I think in order to build companies, again, talking about being the CEO of a company, that's, that's necessary. It's a, it's a risk management consideration for investors as well. Key man risk has been a risk that, you know, that we've considered deeply over my time at the firm. And it remains something that we consider in every, in every investment. So one way to control invest key man risk is to uh, or key person risk is to uh, broaden the group of key people, you know, again, to, to have a, a larger group of people on whom you're depending as opposed to just one key person. Sure. Yeah, uh, diverse that, risk. That's, that's, that's one thing. I think the other thing, Dave, is, you know, having, having a vision and a passion for what they're doing. Right. So again, over time, if you're successful, everybody is motivated by money at some level, right. But over time, the motivational effect of additional wealth reaches a point of diminishing returns. So mm-hmm. in order to keep going at that, at that stage of one's career, you have to be motivated by something different. And it's one of the things that we look for when we hire people. We're looking for people who want to be the best. They want to be the absolute best at what they do. And they want to play on the best team. And mm-hmm. um, if, we can, if we can continue to do those things, I, you, know, you solve for a lot of your problems. But that's, that's another marker of long-term success in great leaders, mm-hmm. vision, passion, motivation, all those things are really important. And then, you know, I, I think CEOs also have to be very good salesmen. That doesn't mean they have to be the, the pitch person or the, the uh, used car salesman or what have you, but they've got to be able to, to, to tell the story of their company in a very, very compelling way that gets, and that message has to be compelling both internally and externally. You have to be able to convince the people inside your company that what you're doing is really important. It's going to be great. And likewise, you have to convince your customers and or your partners or whomever that your entity, your organization is uniquely capable of um, creating value for, for everyone in the, in the, um, in the partnership. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea of, you know, if you can inspire people, it's amazing. You know, the, the additional gears you can get out of that and then how, how, how that can really make the team.
be productive. I was just kind of reminded of this recently this weekend. I was with a, a company who was just starting up and we were running sort of a strategy session for them. They were talking about their mission, which honestly, this isn't a joke, was like to cure cancer. And uh, you're like, well, that's compelling. And then they started talking about their approach to it. And, you know, you, you wanted to, you want to take the hill at the end of the cock. I mean, you're like, all right, I'm in, like, I don't even know what we're doing, but I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it was, it was really compelling. And it was fun to be just in a room of really smart people, uh, all sort of like, you know, didn't need to be there that were sort of aligning around this common goal. Um, I mean, you yeah. had like molecular biologists from, from Harvard who, you know, basically won the equivalent Nobel Peace Prize at like 16. And I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm really out of my league here <laughs> <You know? laughs> in, in this room. But, um, no, it was it was really really compelling. As you think about how things have evolved, especially, you know, we just you know, oftentimes when when I when I've dealt with people in finance, they they don't they tend to like look at like uh, events that be like these things that sort of drive you know dislocation or opportunity in, in the marketplace. And obviously, we've just been through a pretty pretty significant event with you know the COVID and and the effects. I'd love to hear how you're seeing the current trends and what are you seeing as far as what's next. You know, Dave, we've been, I've been using this uh, analogy again. I just tend to borrow for, for lib- liberally from great teachers from my past. But when I was in college, I took a class taught by the famous uh, scientist, Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, he taught, a, he, 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 one of his famous theories was punctuated e- equilibrium. Uh, it was his own theory of evolution, which said, hey, listen, instead of the a gradualistic traditional view of Darwinian evolution, what I see in the fossil record is that in, we see periods of very, very rapid evolution in species in response to sudden environmental change. So mm. things are very, very, very stable for a long time. Then you have a big environmental change and you see rapid evolution in species. The natural selection process occurs in a compressed time frame, And what comes out as the environment settles down looks very different than it, than the world uh, when it entered. And I think that's a useful analogy to think about what's going what's going yeah, on in the world post COVID, right? So again, we we're seeing a lot of that in some of the industries in which we invest, and I think COVID has served to accelerate a lot of the secular trends that were emerging before the pandemic, and um, those trends could have been upwards or downwards, right? So in some cases, uh, it's accelerating the the sunsetting or demise of certain secular themes, and it's accelerating the emergence of others, and uh, those are the things that we spent a lot of time last year really trying to understand. We had lots of conversations about what's the shape of the curve? How much of this is just pulling forward demand, in, which will then go through some period of mean reversion in this sinusoidal pattern around uh, the long-term trend? And how much of this is a uh, pulling forward and then continued acceleration from that point forward? Um, mm. and, uh, and where did your analysis leave you on that? I'm curious. What are those well, trends that you think are going to revert back to the mean? And what do you think those things that are establishing a new sort of plateau and are, are going to keep? Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, you can, you can, the answer to that is just in a, in a simple examination of your own behavior over the course of the last year. Are you consuming as much streaming video? Are you uh, ordering as much delivery? Are you uh, riding your Peloton as much as, or going to the gym? I mean, all those things that, that were, were moments in time where, we really change behavior. We're forced to change behavior in a very sudden, uh, sudden manner. Are, are how much of those changes in your personal behavior are continuing on now that you're vaccinated and traveling again and going back to work? Right. Those are just some simple analogies that I use. I, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, all, the answer to to all of those questions in my own personal observation is that I'm doing less of all of those things than I did in uh, June of 2020. 
because you know we're we are in some ways uh, going back to work and getting back to normal. And um, you talk. This is interesting because I've been sort of trying to figure this out, like with just my own self of travel. And you know, I, I you know probably like you, I spent most of my life on the road. Uh, whether I was in the military, I was just deployed, or you know, and then back home. Even when we were home, we were training. We were it was, it was very little training actually in San Diego. It was usually some other facilities around around the country. And then when I got out and you know started working, I'm in a, I'm in naturally in the services business, and so I was always sort of out trying to service clients somewhere. But, um, you know, the last year and a half, you've been home a lot and th- that's different. But the thing I like about it is I like the extra time with my children. Like I, I sort of, you know, I think, I think my son is going to look at this period of his life because he was, you know, seven, eight years old and say, wow, you know, mom and dad were around a lot. And that was cool. Like he, he loved the fact that he didn't have to go to school. He's <laughs> like, this is great. And I don't think he learned anything in a year and a half, but, 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 um, it was great. And so I, I'm, I, I'm sort of re, I know I'm going to start traveling again to your point uh, more, but I, I am trying to recalibrate how much and like, you know, are there things that I can do virtual that, you know, the, the ROI from just a time standpoint, you know, makes sense. And then what are those things that are really impactful? I mean, how are you thinking about that? Just cause I know you, you, you have lots of different constituencies that you got to keep happy, you know, between LPs and probably team that you work with and probably the, 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 the companies that you, you partner with. Yeah. There, there's a, I think there's a trade-off perhaps, or at least a consideration between efficiency uh, and, uh, and competitive excellence, right? I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who runs, um, tech investment banking at a major wall street firm said, listen, uh, the conversation he's having with his senior colleagues is that they've just had a record year in terms of fee generation and transaction volume. While most of their senior guys are sitting in their Hamptons homes. Now he's asking them to commute back to midtown Manhattan and get on airplanes and right. go see clients, right? Well, while that, the statement may indeed be true that they've never been more productive than they were sitting in the Hamptons. Uh, if their competitors are going to see clients in person, they will eventually lose that, that productivity, right? The world will force them back to some semblance of normal. Now, that's not to say that there, is not, there aren't opportunities for efficiency. But for us, uh, I think, like many organizations, the, the relationships you build which are the foundation of trust and confidence and all the things that are necessary for well-functioning teams, those things can't really be, be built purely virtually. Eventually you I have agree. to spend time together. And yeah, I could not agree more. Yeah. How have you thought about that with your own team, you know, bringing them back together, you know, co- you know, now that, you know, conditions have sort of materially improved, how are you thinking we, about reinvesting we, in culture? Yeah, we had hours of conversation about this, but we eventually just said, and we said this in April, actually, that on August 2nd, we'll all be back in the office. Mm. And again, it was, it was a consistent statement that we cannot and will not be a virtual firm. In my view, that's not the, at least for us, that's not the way, the way to run our business in large part, because, you know, if you go back to what our culture and our values are, one of our guiding principles is teamwork. And I, I think teamwork is difficult to, to optimize when you're just interacting with each other in, in 2d, you know, and I see on a flat screen, that's one thing, but I can spend a lot of time with you in this format. But you know, when you and I go hunting every year, it, our, our relationship gets deeper. Right. And that's just, that's, that's a simple analogy. And it's, and it's, um, I, I, since we've made that announcement, 
I think there's quite a bit of enthusiasm for going back to the office. I think people are ready to interact with each other. You know, we've onboarded uh, something of like 50 people virtually, and uh, I'm very interested in just meeting all of them in person. Right. So have you gotten any uh, pushback from the, from the, from the, some, some of the employees? Yeah. I think some people enjoy the flexibility. I think, um, listen, I, I, I lived in San Francisco for seven years and drove to Palo Alto. So I understand that the, the ch- then this was before cell phones <laughs> and hmm. Tesla's, but, uh, I understand the personal cost of time, uh, to commute, but the office was never in San Francisco. It was always in Menlo park when we hired folks, or it was always in the back bay in Boston or in, in Mayfair in London. So the office hasn't moved. So we're, we, we, again, we think that the benefit, the long-term benefit in terms of mentorship, development, trust, relationships, culture, all those things really outweigh, uh, I think the friction of, of making the commutes and yeah, the same is true for me. I drive to the office and it's not always, not always easy or fun, but, um, I think some of that will be, or all of it will be outweighed by the benefit of uh, being together in person. So going back to your own self-reflection, Peter, as, as you look at those, those, maybe those habits or those those that you think will be enduring coming out of this, like, you know, like you said, you're not riding as much Peloton, you're, you're, you're not as home as you were as much before, but not worrying as much takeout. What, what are some, what are some new patterns or new muscles that you've built that you think you're going to be leveraging now, you know, coming out of this pandemic? Uh, you know, that's a really good question, Dave. I think, um, the friction of having meetings is, has, um, just gone down so much in a virtual setting. You know, you can have 15 meetings in a, in a 12 hour day, if you want. Right. I think we've all learned to, to increase the, the, uh, the pace at which we can work. Now, I'm, I think that's to some extent sustainable. We've trained our brains to process information very, very quickly to digest it and consume it and actually to produce it in formats that are more, that have by necessity have become more efficient, right? You can, you can't work 25 hours in a day. Um, so, you know, if you, there's a natural time constraint on how much you can work, your, your work product will, by, by definition has become more efficiently produced. So I think there's been some added benefit in that context. I think we've learned to make decisions more, uh, efficiently and more deliberately, right? There pattern recognition. It's not just pattern recognition because that can get a little dangerous, right? If you rely too much on pattern recognition, but I think as an, as an organization, we've learned to filter all the information you receive and distill it into four or five or six key threads, which allow us to make a decision. And I think mm-hmm. our internal processes to drive that decision-making have improved because of the pace and the frequency that's been forced by a virtual work environment. Yeah. It sounds like you're, you're describing like the equivalent for like a baseball player, just getting more reps, right? More pitches you see, yeah. you've seen more. And so your, your, your ability to sort of, you know, consistently hit at a higher level is, you know, has improved that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. It makes like, I, I had this belief sort of, I didn't, I'm not nearly as eloquent as you on talking about your professor at Stanford, but I have a similar thesis that, you know, you go through these moments of dislocation and you build new muscle and, you know, or add new tools to your toolkit. And then, you know, there'll be, there'll be, they'll, you'll be able to apply those kind of going forward uh, consistently. It'll make you sort of reimagine how you can solve problems. And, you know, if you're committed to continuous improvement and, you're, and how, how you, to your point, like constantly perform at a high level, you, you, you have some additional tools now that you can leverage. And so I'm trying to figure out, ascertain what those are exactly. But certainly, uh, as I've talked to other leaders, but even especially in finance, they, they, they sort of, what they like about the last is to your point they they can do 20 meetings in a day. 
And that's something that would have been really hard to do when they weren't spending a lot of time on a plane or whatever else. And so they're like, look, that that's great. But you're right. Uh, it, you know, to the extent that, you know, relationships is the fun, the foundational part of your business. You can't really de- develop those virtually. You just can't. And especially if you're, if your competition's doing it in person, right? So that's going to, yeah. it's going to require you to make it, you know, a reinvestment in that. That, that makes yeah. a ton of sense. Well, awesome. So maybe uh, as we start to wrap up here, here, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, some books or, or some things that you're, you're personally doing to, you know, continue your own development as a leader. Like what, what are those things that you invest time in or make time for? Well, Dale, I, th- I think, again, it's this, it, it, there's a sort of a, I tr- like to try to keep things simple because there's just less to remember, but all the things that I say to our people, I apply to myself. So I'm, how am I improving continuously, right? Am I, am I better today than I was yesterday or a year ago? Am I innovating? Am I, am I introducing new ideas without, you know, going off, you know, 50 million directions? Am I finding ways to do certain things differently or better and more efficiently? Or am I spurring the organization uh, to think about our business in a, in a different way while remaining? It's a, it's, you know, of course that innovation is an important thing in everything we do. It's kind of sounds funny to talk about innovation in a, in a, you know, private equity firm. But it's incredibly important, and I think having an innovation mindset is really the um, the key to this thinking. How do we think constantly about doing things differently or better? Uh, and then finally, a culture of excellence. Am I upholding that standard? You know, am I pushing myself to be better? Am I uh, encouraging everyone to achieve to their potential? Uh, and are, are we recognizing opportunities to help people improve if they're not doing that? Um, And, you know, I think Dave, the other thing, and this is specific to our business, but it's always just, it's just really important to remember that you can't, as the saying goes, you can't confuse a bull market for brains, right? We've had a (laughs) tailwind. There's been a tailwind in the investing business and that's been in place since 2008 or nine, right? Since the GFC, it's the longest, broadest, deepest asset bubble in the history of organized commerce. And, um, it's very different than the tech bubble very different than other periods of time. I think I, I, you know, I've given up trying to predict when, when, and uh, how it will, it will change. But, um, I, I, I think it, I, it's one of the things I worry about is there are a lot of people in the business, including in our own firm, who've never really lived through a period of time like the GFC where nothing is working, right? Where everything you, even great decisions make you look like an idiot, right? Uh-huh. because of exogenous circumstances. I mean, we'll, we'll probably see that environment at some point in the, in, in the future. Well, there will be a correction at some point, but you know, it hasn't been one for a very long time. And the investing business is not this easy. It's just not right. I mean, the, to produce the kinds of returns that, that a lot of investors have produced, I think we have to appreciate that there's a tremendous amount of macro tailwind behind that those that performance. Yes, people have made great decisions. Yes, there are a lot of really really smart people, but eventually, we in the industry will be tested when um, there's another seismic shock to um, the system. How do you get that message across to some of those newer um, investment professionals at your firm, you know, who have never really seen this cycle? Because this is a common this is a common thing I hear from more experienced investors when they're talking about trying to relate to, to maybe the people that haven't been through one of these cycles. What do you do to sort of mentally prepare them or, or get them to, 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 to be at least have some contingency in place to think through this? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we talk constantly about investing fundamentals, 
I think there are periods of time where you can illustrate the fact that investing fundamentals remain timeless, right? So in our strategy meeting in March, uh, this was right after there had been a spike in the 10-year treasury. And sure as night follows day, you know, all the highest multiple names had traded off 20 or 30%. Why? Fairly simple. You know, interest rates are, they're a price. They're the price of time. So if the price of time goes up, you're less willing to wait for future cash flows. That has an impact on valuations. All these things are, you know, mm. Graham and Dodd, you know, type stuff, right? The, the, these are These are teachings that are a century old. But they, they remain fairly timeless lessons. And eventually, investing fundamentals will have their say. But in the meantime, you know, I think uh, you, we, you, you've got to relate uh, the lessons that we've learned as an organization and imbue the organization with those lessons as soon as you can. Because there's a mm. great temptation to chase things, which is extraordinary, right? Remaining discipline, remaining focus, those are the things that make any investment firm or any organization great, right? Any. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the other things I've, I've heard a lot of debate around is like, and I, it's hard for me to tell because you you'd probably be better for answers, but this modern day retail investment trend, commercial trend that's like causing massive uh, disruption to markets. How much of that do you think is, is, is truly just like a fad and how much do you think this is just like a new way of working? a new reality of the business that has to be factored in. Like, you know, do people need to be monitoring Reddit boards you know, in yeah. the future? You know, I, a lot of my hedge fund friends say that they've got to be very careful with their short book because uh, if one of them shows up on uh, on in that Reddit forum... And, it's going to uh, be a bad yeah. couple of days. Yeah, it's, it's going <laughs> to be a bad day. Um, you know, it, I think that's just another form of external influence, right? There were corporate raiders, there were activist investors. Now there's these, you know, meme stocks, I mean, all that stuff is just, that's, that's reality. And, uh, I think that that has to go into your, into your calculus of, uh, and your assessment of risk when you, when you make an investment or go short a stock or what have you. Yeah. I don't know if the SEC may have something to say about this, right? Because there's some, sure. some there'll be some investigation of it, but you know, I, if you look at some of these, these, uh, trading apps, I mean, they're, they look like games, right? It's, uh, uh you know, if people are making money doing it, then you can expect there there will be more of it. But it's not right. investing, right? It's not investing. It really looks like entertainment, which can be a very expensive form of entertainment if you get it wrong. Yeah, I know. What's what's fascinating for me, just taking it back to my military experiences, when you go overseas and you're you're in combat and you're you see some you know adaptation in the battlefield about how the enemy is reacting, and you try and understand like, okay, well, this is fundamentally different than. Then, you know, sort of what we were trained for, what we expected, it seems, it might even seem irrational. You know, one of the things is, would you just stick to the base fundamentals or do you have to actually evolve or adapt, you know, how you're approaching the situation based on this, you know, this is something that's uh-huh. going to be more pervasive. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's about winning, right? And so you have to yeah. adapt to win and you know, if, you know, if you don't, then you're, you're going to lose. And, you know, in, in sports analogies that, that sort of, that the person that can anticipate and, and have a, the fastest, quick, you know, first half step has a huge advantage. Right. And so always trying to stay at that cutting edge is, you know, was sort of fundamental how we operate. As I think about this in terms of like s- some people that I, you know, I've spoken to recently on the portfolio management side is, you know, they're, they're sort of struggling with this idea that the fundamentals don't matter right now. Like you can know what's going to happen or predict what's going to happen perfectly. And yet you'd still, fi- you know, lose money on the trade or fail. And he goes, that, that seems disorienting. And then you couple that with, 
well, what's causing this? And they said, well, it's, it's something that like to you, it's, it feels like more like a game uh, that, that, that you know, people maybe that aren't professionals are, are playing. They go, well, do I want to be doing this anymore? And so it's, you know, right. it's interesting as they, as they sort of rustle through this. I, I didn't know if you had any thoughts. Well, you know, again, if you're, if your performance is assessed on an hourly or a daily or weekly basis, uh, I think you can't ignore what's going on with yeah, that's uh, a great point. the, uh, the, the fractional high velocity share trading and the meme stocks and so forth. You know, fortunately our business is evaluated more and uh, over longer periods of time. Right. So, you know, the vintages, if you will, of funds, uh, the 2016 vintage or the 2018 vintage or the 2012 vintage, the performance of those funds takes time to develop. And, um, you know, the, the, the test of your strategy is how can that, how does your strategy produce over much longer periods of time in our case 38 years right that's um i, I think that's a, a subtle but important difference in our business versus you know the hedge fund or, or public equities business hence why you you're always stressing the fundamentals with your team yeah so over time you, you're confident those will play out uh well peter look i really appreciate you spending the time today if, if you if, before you go is there any Books you're reading now that you're finding, you know, particularly compelling, and they don't need to be uh, about business. They could just be something of interest. To, you know, I, I, people listening to this always were trying to figure out how to how to how to, how to be better. So I'd be curious if there's anything right now that you're you're watching or, or listening to or reading that you know is is you know sort of piqued your interest. It's called The Indifferent Stars Above. Just a fascinating and gripping tale of the story of the Donner Party. So I've been recommending that book recently. Which, and why, why is it so fascinating to you? It's a real object lesson in handling adversity and what the, the compromises many people had to make in that party in order to survive. And then mm-hmm. what the aftermath of some of those decisions were in the years and decades following that, that extraordinarily traumatic story. But it's also an interesting uh, lesson in leadership. Some of the decisions that were made that led the Donner Party into this very, very unfortunate and frankly, unnecessary trial. And, um, I thought, I thought it was, it, it's, a, it's extraordinarily well-written, a fascinating story, but there are some mm-hmm. leadership lessons to be drawn from it as well. Very cool. Awesome. Peter, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining me. My great pleasure, Dave. One more thing before we finish the episode, the Crosslead podcast is produced by the team at Truthwork Media. I want to make this the best leadership podcast available, so I would love to get your feedback. Our goal this season is to have authentic conversations with special operators, business leaders, and thought leaders on the topics of leadership and agility. If you have any feedback, suggested topics, or leaders that you want to hear from, please email me at contact at crosslead.com. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend and drop us a rating. Until next time, thank you for joining